just, just good that we could do it again. So, uh, again, it was, we're really grateful for, for all who, who worked together to make that happen. Well, as we get started, let me, let me open this up in prayer. Father, it's a, a great morning. We thank you for your mercies, which are new to us every day. We just are so blessed that we can come together as your people and open your word and, and study it, uh, not only this hour, but uh, hear it preached and, and uh, worship you together in the, in the next hour. Uh, we uh, ask that you would teach us, that you would uh, make your uh, word clear to us as we look at it uh, today, and uh, you'd apply it to our hearts, and we would obey it and live it uh, in our lives every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of neat technology uh, out there, and, and one that uh, it's kind of kind of fun, but it's kind of kind of dangerous. Is one of those uh, the uh, on your on your smartphone where you are texting and you're texting something and it auto completes what you're thinking, you know. And then next thing you know, you've hit send, and it, you look at it. Well, I didn't mean to send that. <laughs> it's, it's a completely different word that you wanted to wanted to send. Um, and then there's, there's also the technology of, you know, doing a Google search. You open up your Google browser and you start typing in something and it completes it. And it's a great way, it's a great tool to, to look up anything. And so I just thought this morning, okay, think you're, you're on your Google uh, search, Google Chrome, and you're typing this in. What do you think it's going to return? The rise and fall of... Ah, yeah, Elder, I knew you would say that first. He said Mars Hill. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, a lot of us elders have been listening to a podcast about uh, this church called Mar- Mars Hill that was started in the late 90s, uh, just grew to uh, incredible size, had a very authoritarian, really abusive pastor, and in 2014 it was completely... Dissolved, and so there's a podcast on Christianity Today that that uh, details and uh, that that story. What other things might come to mind? Would you, the rise and fall of Roman Empire. Roman Empire. Very good. Very good. What else? Somebody say something. The Third Reich, a book about the the rise of Nazism in Germany and how that all worked out. Um, you know, if you were a, a business person, you might be interested in. The rise and fall of Enron, you know, that company back in the uh, turn of the century that, again, its stock had risen to $90 a share pretty much, and just in a matter of months, it completely collapsed and uh, took down a lot of other uh, firms with it. Uh, But, you know, uh, we can see that happening in many different areas of life, and there's books and documentaries and podcasts and movies even made about how these entities rise and fall. But after all, we live in a fallen world, don't we? I mean, it's not surprising that nations, businesses, kingdoms, churches rise and fall due to a, a variety of situations. And we study those collapses to hopefully learn from their mistakes so they're not repeated. Well, today... We're looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3, and um, as you know, we're, if you've been here, we're kind of in that transition from Saul's kingdom to David's kingdom in this 
in these books. And, you know, you might be able to accurately say, in this section at least, that this is about the rise and fall of the house of Saul. Um, but even more specifically, chapter 3, I think we could even entitle it The Rise and Fall of Abner, the Son of Ner. Uh, this is a, is a time when uh, God is bringing to pass the realization of David's kingdom. It's been a long time coming. Many people have refused it. Many people have uh, resisted it. Some have tried to force it. But David himself has maintained his his faith, for the most part, uh, that God will eventually bring it to pass, even though he's fled for a while, lived among the Philistines, uh, he is, but yet he has suffered many a day at the hands of Saul and his men, uh, waiting for it to come to pass. But David knows that there's really nothing that can prevent God from establishing his permanent, eternal kingdom, nor even his own, his own earthly, temporal kingdom. And while there has been doubt, uh, doubts, he's held on to God's promises for him and his kingdom. But considering that, let's just step back for a second and kind of pinpoint where we are in redemptive history. We know from the, from the beginning, from the fall, God immediately promised that he would send a, a redeemer to, to save his people. And it was a people that he himself brought, to, brought into existence through people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a people set free from slavery in Egypt through Moses who led them out to the promised land. And it was there in the promised land that God planned to establish an earthly kingdom. And through this kingly lineage would ultimately come the king of kings, the promised redeemer, who would save his people from their sins so that complete restoration and redemption could be realized for all eternity. So, so we're at that point where, where God is fulfilling his plan to establish an earthly, king, an earthly kingdom. And this kingdom would not be through the house of Saul, but it would be through the house of David. And everyone knew that. It was um, pretty much common knowledge that this, was what, this is what God was going to do. And um, even though it was common knowledge people still resisted it in one way or another. So we're going to focus on four people in this chapter. There's, there's two kings and there's two commanders. There's the king of Israel, Ishbosheth, and the king of Judah, David. There's the commander of the army of Israel, Abner, and then the commander of, of David's army, uh, Joab. And we want to keep in mind as we go through this how each person responds to or reacts to the fact that, that God is establishing his kingdom through David. And while we're much further along the path of redemptive uh, plan of God today, we can still react the same way to God's promise to ultimately and permanently establish Christ's kingdom. So I think in this way, the, this chapter provides us real insight in how we should maintain our perspective and keep believing and holding to God's promises no matter how things look to our eyes. And if there ever was a chapter that demonstrated how God takes the evil actions and motivations of men and uses them to accomplish his purposes, this would be one. So hopefully we'll see that God is the one orchestrating everything that's happening and he is sovereignly fulfilling his promises to David and all his people. So let's begin by looking at this chapter, 
Uh, we're going to first look on your handout there. We have uh, the first section that is in verses 1 through 11. So let me read those. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew, became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to him in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand, uh, in the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God so, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So we see here that uh, it's setting the stage for, for Abner to uh, make this pitch to David to bring over the kingdom. And it talks about how there's this long war that was going on. We know that David was king at Hebron for about seven years. For, so probably for about that long, there was this, this, this battle in some form or fashion uh, between David's house and Saul's house. And Saul's was continually getting weaker and weaker. They lost men, they lost places, they lost battles. Essentially, it was because God was against it. God was turning the tide, was changing things and making David stronger and stronger. And one indication of this was, as it's mentioned there, the many wives and the many sons that were born to him. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern at that time, a, a king who had many wives and many sons, that was an indication of their strength. And the writer here does not go into the details about the fact that David was a polygamist. I mean, he, he already had two wives, right? But he begins to accumulate more wives while he's at Hebron, and then sons are born to him. And we know from later passages that he even accumulates more wives and more sons. So while it's a definite violation of God's plan for, for marriage, as a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, there's an explicit uh, command to the kings that would come to not accrue, not multiply wives for fear that they would lead the king astray. And uh, certainly, this would come back to, uh, to haunt David. We know of many uh, disturbing, just, uh, difficult situations that uh, resulted from uh, the, many, the many sons, from the many wives he had. But that's not the focus right now. It's really just to emphasize that how he was growing stronger and stronger. Well, at the same time, Saul and his Bosheth was growing weaker and weaker, and it, we see there that Abner is really the strength behind the throne, right? He is the one who is gaining uh, the upper hand in Ishbosheth's kingdom. If he failed, the whole house of Saul would fail. So 
it, you got a sense that he begins to see how things are, are playing out. It's becoming evident more and more that, that Saul's house, that Ishbosheth's kingdom would not last. So, you know, he makes a calculated move. Um, it was the custom in those days that the, the royal harem would go to the success, successor of the, of the king. So when Abner makes a move on this concubine, Ishbosheth sees that as a move on the throne. And so, um, I don't know, I'm kind of under, under the impression that, that uh, this was intentional on the part of Abner. Either Ishbosheth would just ignore it, and he would continue to gain more and more power and take over more and more, or if he resisted it, as he did, it would be the occasion that would serve for him to uh, reach out to David and transfer the kingdom. Um, so it's not really clear that this really happened. I mean, he denies it. He, uh, or he doesn't deny it. He just uh, gets defensive about the accusation. Uh, but it infuriates him. And then he recalls all the things he's done, his loyalty to, to the house of Saul, and he vows to transfer the kingdom to David. Um, you know, the ironic thing is that he swears to accomplish what he knows to be God's plan that he knew all along, but only now conveniently agrees with it since it's clearly the only way he can maintain his position and influence. And Ishbosheth just is uh, in, incapable of answering him out of great fear. So that kind of sets the stage for the next section. Let's read verses 12 through 21. Where it says, And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to his Bosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, and he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will, save I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And, and Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So, David, so Abner sends this message to David, and we have this kind of uh, vague uh, phrase that he, that he initiates this offer. He says, to whom does the land belong? So it's not real clear, is he acknowledging that the land does belong to David, and he's finally come around to that, and it's time to, to make this happen? Or is he saying, I own all the land of Israel, I'm ready to make a deal? It's not real 
not real clear what he means by that. Uh, matter of fact, one commentator pretty, is pretty clear in his uh, understanding of what Abner means when he makes this proposal. He says, he approaches King David not as one who has done him a great wrong, but as one who, is, who offers to do him a great favor. There is no word of regret for his having opposed what he knew to be God's purpose and promise, no apology for the disturbance he had wrought in Israel, no excuse for all the distress which he had caused David by keeping the kingdom and the people at war. He does not come as a rebel to his sovereign, but as one independent man to another. Make a league with me. Secure me from punishment. Promise me a reward. For this, he simply offers to place at David's disposal that powerful hand of his that had been so mighty for evil. So, again, it's hard to get into the mind of Abner, but he makes this proposal, and David is glad to hear it, but he says, only on one condition will you see my face. I want you to return my wife, Michael, to me. So, you know, why this condition? What, what's going on here? Did, did David really love Michael? His, his first wife, is that what's the motivating factor? Um, is it vindication of some sort? Was it mainly just a, a political arrangement that would serve to show David's allegiance to all the nation of Israel? Was it some kind of a indication that he really was uh, opposed to Philistines and, his, and all their enemies? You know, he had... He had lived among them for a while, but he reminds them of that price he paid for, for, uh, for his wife, Michael. Um, it, again, it, it's hard to say why he makes that condition. Um, I guess, you know, the really sad part about it, this is Pautil, who, uh, you know, your heart can't help but go out for the guy uh, when he has his wife taken from him, uh, and yet... Honestly, I mean, he only has himself to blame. He took another man's wife. But be that as it may, he is uh, told to, to return. But having met that condition, he welcomes uh, Abner. But before Abner goes, he approaches the rest of the, the nation of Israel and says it's time to consolidate under David. And he basically says two things. Look, he's been your choice. You've been saying it for, for a while now. David is your choice for being king. Apparently, they were, they were uh, no longer wanting to live under the reign of Ishbosheth. Then he said it's also God's choice. So he uses his influence to um, convince them. He goes specifically to the tribe of Benjamin. And why Benjamin? Obviously, because he's a part of that Abner himself as well as as Ishbosheth is from the tribe of Benjamin. So he has to single them out to convince him. And everybody is in agreement. And so Abner can now come to David. And so he does. And there's this great celebration, this feast that David uh, gives for Abner and his men. And they come and there's uh, uh, reconciliation. There's unity. There's uh, a commitment. There's a covenant that they speak of that they will make. And finally, David's long wait appears to be over. So he sends Abner away in peace, it says. Three times in the, the, these verses, he says he sends him away in peace, meaning he can go securely. There's no, there's no fear of reprisal. We're 
excited about this finally happening. happening. Um, and say what you will about Abner, but humanly speaking, he certainly uh, accomplished what probably no other man in, in Israel could do. So in spite of his personal ambitions, the, king would now, the kingdom would now be unified under David. So now let's uh, turn to the next session. Next section, And uh, even though it looks like things are coming together, in the famous words of Lee Corso, that former football coach, who if you watch college game day on Saturday mornings in the fall, and they're predicting score, he says, not so fast, right? So enter Joab. All right, so let's read verses 22 through 27. It says, just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. For the blood of Azahel, his brother. So, Joab has been out doing his commander thing, raiding probably the Philistines, who knows, maybe even some of the house of David, I mean, house of uh, Israel. But he's made a great haul. He's bringing the spoil back, thinking David is going to be so thrilled with what he's, what he's done. And then when he gets back, not only does he hear that, but he hears probably the worst news he, he could ever hear, and that, that Abner had been there, and that David had met with him and received him, and that he had let him go in peace, and then, then there was this potential covenant now that was going to be made between Israel and David, and Abner himself is positioned to uh, be a very integral part of that. So... Um, you know, to, to say that, that Abner overreacted would be an understatement. Essentially, Joab, I mean, excuse me, Joab, Joab goes ballistic. He levels every reason to suspect Abner, Abner had deceitful intentions. But, you know, Joab had every reason to trust David. David had been a man who demonstrated he, he trusted God, that he was following the Lord, that he wanted to do the Lord's will. Joab saw this day in and day out, and he, he could trust him. But instead, he chides and excoriates, excoriates David. He questions David as if David is accountable to him. But you notice that there is no answer from David, and that's either because David just despised him or Joab didn't even hang around to wait for an answer. He already had hatched the plan in his mind. And that was to deal with Abner. So he, he sends a party out to retrieve Abner. Abner, unsuspecting anything, he just left David. Everything seemed to be rosy. So uh, 
not knowing who's requested him to return, he obviously comes back, and uh, Joab is waiting for him. He's waiting for him in the gate. Now, mind you, Hebron was one of those cities that they called the a city of refuge. It, those were the places where if somebody had uh, accidentally killed another person, uh, they could flee to a city of refuge to be protected from the family seeking revenge. So this is what Hebron is. Well, Job's very uh, sneaky about the way he's going to handle this. He meets him at the gate, doesn't even let him, doesn't allow him into the city, takes him aside and stabs him in the stomach so that he dies. Um, it's a very dastardly deed. Uh, it's the stated reason is it was before the death of Azahel, his brother. But you remember last week, as Jared covered that story, that was really in a battle, wasn't it? I mean, uh, Azahel was chasing Abner. He was uh, hot on his trail. Abner kept trying to tell him to turn aside, stop following me. And most likely in self-defense, Abner eventually had to strike down, <clears throat> strike down Azahel. Uh, so even though that was a, a death that occurred in the battle, this was nothing less than cold-blooded murder uh, that, that Abner did against, uh, that Joab did against Abner. So things are beginning to unravel as soon as, Things looked like they were coming together. Things are beginning to take a different turn. So how would David respond? Let's look at verses 28 through 39 now. It says, Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and made the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tell your, Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased him, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king, these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. According to his wickedness. So how could David keep things from falling apart? Uh, what could he do to demonstrate 
that he was uh, not in favor of this horrible murder, a murder that Joab obviously did to remove a potential rival. Um, David immediately declares his innocence in Abner's murder. And while he may have, he might have, should have passed sentence on Joab and Abishai, instead he pronounces this curse on him and his family. And as we read there, it's a pretty thorough, thorough curse that covers just about every aspect of life. Um, and even though David spares him, he doesn't pass sentence on him, he continues to serve David all of his life, all of his reign, but eventually it all comes back on him. He eventually pays the price for this murder. If you look ahead into the first chapters of 1 Kings, you'll see there where Joab is, is struck down. David commissions Solomon to, to deal with Joab. It was not going to be him, but he, he commissions or he strongly suggests to Solomon to deal with Joab. And, he is, he is uh, killed on behalf of, uh, of David for his efforts in trying to undermine his throne. So David immediately curses Joab. And then through this, through this honoring of the way Abner was, was buried, it's demonstrated that he genuinely is mourning for the loss of Abner. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He insists that Joab and all his people participate in this, this, real nat this national uh, funeral on behalf of Abner. He himself is in the funeral procession following the casket. And he instructs Ab that Abner be buried in Hebron. Remember we saw last week that Hebron was one of the cities of the patriarchs. So being buried there was like, would be like us being buried in Arlington National Cemetery or someone being buried in Westminster Abbey. Um, this is an honor for him to be buried in, in Hebron. So they, he laments with tears. He composes a poem bemoaning the unjust manner of David's death. He fasts all day to demonstrate his sincerity. In all of David's respects, he pays to Abner, pleases the people. So uh, with that, the people are convinced that David had nothing to do with it. They uh, don't hold him uh, at fault. And um, things begin to continue as, as uh, they started out. So I, I said at the beginning, just uh, as we wrap up here, a um, few minutes remaining, uh, I want us to take the, a look at each person and how they re reacted or responded to the, the fact that the kingdom was now being established. And I think it's instructive for us because we're still kind of in a similar situation, Right? The eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, while it's been promised to us, while it is uh, certain to happen in the, in the, in the future, um, we need to keep on believing that that's happening. And we need to be aware of the responses that we see in some of these uh, uh, individuals, that we don't have the same perspective that they do. Let's take his Bashith first. What would you say his, his attitude, his perspective is anybody pretty much pretty much unbelief just outright denial I mean he denied God's plan 
He was not the legitimate king, but he refused to step down, whether out of pride or fear or ambition. He uh, no doubt knew God's promises to David and what was, uh, what was going to happen to Saul, his father's kingdom. But he remained in, he remained in, uh, in his rule and uh, would not step down. This brought conflict on himself through the accusation of Abner. Next week, we'll see his demise as he's um, murdered by his own nephews. Um, now, just thinking, may we never find ourselves denying God's promises. Sure, there's, there's moments of, of doubt that we might have. We might even question how God can accomplish his will. But isn't that why we need one another? Even that, even that why we need the word. We need to be taught. We need to be reminded. We need to be encouraged week by week, day by day, day from his word, what God is doing and what he's promised and and uh, we need one another. We need to encourage one another and pray for one another. So may we do that to uh, prevent us from denying uh, what God is going to do. And then let's look at Abner's. What was, what was his response? You know, he, he knew just enough of the word of God to be dangerous, right? Um, but was, was that coupled with genuine belief? I, I have my suspicions Seems like Abner was all about Abner. Um, you know, always 